Good afternoon, everybody. Compliments uh, for the new year. I hope it's going to be a good one for you and for us. And um, we're just planning to give you a brief overview of what we're busy with at the moment and what we're planning for the new year. And I suggest that if there are questions, we take them right at the end. I'm going to start with a the presentation, then I'll hand over to Marius uh, halfway. Um, so this is roughly what we're going to cover this afternoon, uh, looking at valuations, some policy matters, uh, appeal board rulings, uh, financial soundness, uh, professional conduct issues, and then just you know what other topical issues we've identified going forward. <clears throat> okay. Valuation reports. Why are valuation reports important? Valuation reports are important because it gives us an indication of the financial condition of pension funds. And given that we over the hump with surplus, and that surplus is mostly out of the way now, um, we have the resources now to focus in more on valuation reports and make sure that they are submitted as they're supposed to be submitted and then also looking at uh, financial soundness. Okay, so what we did was to uh, be consistent with what's happening on the financial statement side. Uh, we introduced penalties for the late submission of uh, valuation reports and we took effect on the 1st of July 2014. Penalties are only raised for active funds, that's funds that are shown as active in our system uh, as opposed to orphan query funds or um, you know, funds without sort of properly constituted boards. And then at the moment we only raise penalties once the submission is made, but it's also the intention to raise penalties for the non-submission of valuation reports. So in other words, once annually there'll be a sort of a penalty run and, and these funds will then also be uh, invoiced. So this gives you an indication of the statistics and what effect our circular has had. Uh, if you look at the 2013 uh, submissions and compare that with 2014. Um, since we issued the intent to, to raise penalties in January, uh, up until the 1st of the July, we actually had quite a, quite a large number of submissions and it's kept us quite busy. But after that, it sort of evened out to the previous year's levels. Uh, just some graphical representation there, you can see the peak in June. So we actually got quite a few variation reports in for what we are sort of very grateful for because it's important that the valuation reports come in and that we can get an indication of whether financial uh, funds are financially sound or not and uh, I'd also like to encourage you to submit your valuation reports even though there are issues outstanding with prior valuation reports and uh, don't let that hold up the submission of the subsequent valuation reports rather submit the subsequent valuation reports and these can always be reviewed at a later stage or you can withdraw them and resubmit them by not submitting for the sake of having, let's say, a 2002 query outstanding is, is, is not a worthwhile proposition for ourselves and we'd really like to encourage you to liaise with your clients and get them to submit their valuation reports because that's the only way in which we'll know whether things are fine or not. What we have is outstanding. We only draw statistics until 2013. That's roughly what's outstanding from our side for active funds, about 650 valuation reports as at the end of 2013 that are outstanding, which means there's quite a bit of work to do, and uh, we rely on the valuators and their teams to, to make sure these valuations are performed on time and then also submitted to us on time. Um, 
so that's really our main focus at the moment, valuation reports. Uh, and then I'm just going to briefly now cover some of the other issues that we also keep ourselves busy with. Policy matters. Um, valuation exemption is the first one that I want to cover. We issued last year the notice 59 of 2014, which replaced the previous notice, and the big change was that exemptions are now granted on a three-year basis, like it used to be in the past. We then also published a list of valuation exemption expiration dates um, that was attached to the notice, and once these valuations expire, you then either need to give us a valuation report or you need to reapply for valuation exemption. That's just a point of clarity on the notice. The notice says that once we withdraw your valuation exemption, you must appoint a valuator and give us a valuation. But that's not the case for this sort of, whole, you know, the list, the big list of, of funds for which valuations were withdrawn. For those funds, if you comply with the provisions of valuation exemption, you can reapply for valuation exemption. We're also busy sending our correspondence to the individual funds to make sure that all the funds are aware that the valuation exemption has expired. We also included new notifications or additional certifications for the board and we try to make it less onerous on valuators in, in certifying the requirements for valuation exemption. The notice was published, in other words if you now apply for valuation exemption this is the prescribed format that must be used. Uh, board amongst others, certify, they, we require certifications from the board uh, that they recognize their duties relating to the solvency of the fund, excuse me, as well as good governance, and then most importantly that they are satisfied that the fund is properly administered because that's typically where things go wrong, especially the types of funds that apply for valuation exemption. When, when problems happen in these funds, excuse me, it's normally administration related. And then more importantly, we also want these funds to advise us once they're no longer eligible for valuation exemption so that we can take regulatory action. We've made it easier for valuators to, to do the certifications, and I think you're all familiar with what the new requirements are. Financial soundness, and that's probably one of the more controversial ones out for comment at the moment. Uh, given the amendments to the Pension Funds Act that were promulgated late 2013, the registrar was given the powers to prescribe a, fun, a sort of evaluation basis and then link to that conditions for financial sort of soundness. And by linking the two, that's what we've tried to achieve in this notice. Uh, we've used the old PF66 um, that will have an effect on when a fund is not financially sound and we recover a scheme of arrangement to clear the deficit. We've kept that as it is. We only brought in the prescribed basis and sort of criteria for financial soundness. Now, generally speaking, there are two recognized methods of determining your discount rate, the risk-free or the equity risk premium approach, and that's been sort of expanded in this notice, as well as the requirement then to fund for a solvency margin. And in addition, we've given the criteria and the Section 18 scheme of arrangement conditions, which is very much what's contained in the old PF66. Okay, comments close on Friday but the actual society uh, retirement matters committee are meeting with us during this week and uh, we'll obviously give them an opportunity then to consolidate their feedback and submit it to us after we've had the meeting okay next one uh, appointment of evaluator this notice was published on the 15th of december and um, the the 
the big thing there is that there was an amendment to the Pension Funds Act that now requires valuators to uh, meet more requirements than what used to be the case in the past. So the more important one, I think, for your purposes as valuators is the requirement to submit an affidavit. And for actuaries that are currently recognized as valuators, they must please make sure that these affidavits reach us by the 15th of March. We did publish a Word copy of the documents on our website, so that should be available if you want to download it and then just use that as a basis for your submission. And then actuaries that are applying to be recognized, they need to submit this affidavit as and when they apply. Then also you need to inform us when your appointment is terminated, what the reasons or perceived reasons thereof uh, would be. So you need to tell us, you may resign your appointment and you might have certain concerns about what's happening in the fund, share those concerns with us. On the other hand, if the fund terminates your appointment and they no longer require your services, you should perhaps have an idea why that is the case and you can also then share that with us. And then when your appointment is <coughs> terminated, the fund has 90 days within which to appoint a new evaluator. Okay, the Pension Funds Act, as I said, was amended end of 2013. These amendments took effect on the 28th of Feb, except for the amendments to Section 18, which took effect on the 31st of August. So I'm just going to run through some of the sort of key amendments that affect us. On Section 14B, the whole sort of minimum benefit formula was amended to allow reasonable expenses. Previously, you'll remember that expenses could only be taken from contributions. That has now been amended that you can actually take uh, expenses even though there are no regular contributions coming in. The important thing though is that these must be reasonable expenses, reasonable in the opinion of the trustees. Then section 15b we amended that so that you can come to us when you want to have your surplus apportionment approval set aside. You don't need to go to the High Court and in the absence of having something prescribed you should just make a submission to us uh, in this regard and we will then give you an indication of what the issues are that we'd like further clarity on. But it's work in progress to get the guidance notes out. But in the meanwhile, if anybody wants to have surplus approval set aside, you can come straight to us. You don't have to go to court. Section 15C was amended to allow future surplus to be directly used for the benefit of members or former members. You don't need to go through the employer or the member surplus account. Um, employer surplus still goes to the employer surplus account, but member surplus does not have to go to the member surplus account. 15D, we provide a clarity on the interpretation of former member in a 15D scenario, and it would typically not be the former member that was a former member at SAD, but it would be the former member that exited the fund between successive valuation periods. 15E, we also amended 15E to allow employers to repay improper uses from the ESA. Previously that was not the case, so you would have a situation where the employer has an improper use obligation and they have money in the employer surplus account, but they couldn't use the money in the employer surplus account to fund the improper use obligation. So we've amended that um, to allow some of these employers then to, to use that money. 15K was basically rewritten, and the big change there is that we can appoint tribunals even where there's a null scheme. And the purpose of that is to bring surplus to a close. So for those few funds that are still out there that haven't done their surplus schemes, this is probably the course of action that we will take to make sure that at the end of the day everybody's complied with surplus legislation. Controversial <laughs> issue 
on unclaimed surplus benefits, Regulation 35.4. Um, unclaimed surplus benefits in terms of 15B, in other words, if you allocate surplus to a former member, um, this surplus must be put in a contingency reserve account. You cannot release it if you cannot trace the member. Okay, so we, a few years ago, we drafted a, a circular uh, that aimed to deal with these unclaimed surplus benefits and, and how we can possibly release them and, and you know, reutilize them within the fund. But that was not published and it wasn't implemented. So you cannot follow the provisions of the, the sort of PF135. Um, in terms of the regulation, you must keep the money. So whenever we find a surplus or a post-surplus valuation report in which the valuator is suggesting that you know, monies are being released from that account, it will most likely be rejected. And we've already had cases that we've not followed that, that route and um, that's what's happening. Um, and it's not that we are um, averse to the principles underlying 135. It's just that at this point in time we are constrained by the legislation. And until that changes or National Treasury gives us a clear indication of what the policy objectives are, we are bound by the provisions of Regulation 35.4. Some appeal board rulings. I'm just going to touch on a few. During the last year, we've had some interesting cases, and I'm just going to um, talk through them very briefly. First one, British American Tobacco Pension Fund versus the Registrar. We rejected their 27 valuation report. Um, what happened there was, following surplus apportionment date, a deficit arose in the fund. And the fund then invoked the provisions of 15H to clear the deficit, drawing on the member and employer surplus account. But in the member surplus account, there were vested rights of, of um, beneficiaries of an improved surplus scheme, in other words, 15B benefits. Uh, we weren't happy with what they were doing, and we rejected the report. Uh, Appeal Board upheld our decision, and the fund has now applied to the High Court to review that. And uh, we're going to court on the 20th of April. Uh, coincidentally, there's another fund that has a similar problem, and they're waiting for the outcome of this matter to decide how they want to proceed. Then Robert Bosch Retirement Fund. Um, for those of you that are familiar with Section 15F of the Act, it allows you to, before you even bring your surplus apportionment scheme, put money in the employer's surplus account. And they brought this application probably more than 10 years ago and we were never satisfied that there were proper negotiation between the stakeholders. So we rejected their 15 application, and um, they've been fighting it ever since. They basically went to all the, you know, appeal, first appeal board, then high court, then supreme court, and each time, you know, we came out okay on that. And they've then approached the constitutional court, but the constitutional court dismissed their, their sort of application. And now they've given us a a proposal to submit a 15B application. Unfortunate thing is that this is 10 years late and, and many of those beneficiaries are probably deceased by now and will never see the benefit of what the surplus legislation had intended. Alan Roy, Telemet Pension Fund. This is a matter which I think we also spoke to you about the previous time. Uh, we approved a Section 14 a, a scheme to outsource pensioners 
and the pensioners then um, appealed our decision on the basis that there, there, there were three points made. The one is that there was an annual guarantee increase in the past, which they believe that you know, certain pensioners had an entitlement to, and they believe that everybody should get it, and, and the Section 14 failed to, to, to sort of cover that. In the past, the fund also had generous sort of pension increases in excess of the pension increase policy, and the pensioners argued that there was a reasonable benefit expectation for, them, for this to continue going forward. Also, the fund uh, had the employer's intention to liquidate with quite a substantial amount in the employer's surplus account. In other words, if the fund then liquidates, the employer would be able to draw that money from the employer's surplus account. And the pensioners argued that it's not reasonable and equitable for them not to share in the employer's surplus account. So the appeal was successful. Our decision was set aside. Uh, we then took it to the High Court on the 27th of May 2014, and we're still um, waiting for judgment on this matter. Just as a matter of interest, the judgments or determinations by the Appeal Board are available on our website in case you want to go through them. There's some of them that are actually quite interesting to read and just to see how lawyers think about matters that actuaries have other views about. Okay, KwaZulu-Natal Retirement Fund. Um, fund had target pensions, DC fund with target pensions, uh, which we weren't happy with because these target pensions were being funded from surplus. They then actually submitted a rule amendment, which we approved, um, and then we went to the High Court to set aside the approval of this rule amendment. We were successful with that, and it went, then went to the Appeal Board because we rejected the valuation reports. But um, our decision was set aside, and um, we decided not to take it any further. So we'll abide by this decision. The fund has since now submitted their surplus schemes, revised, and um, you know, taking into account whatever came out of this. And, and we're busy looking at that. But it does raise some issues for us internally in terms of how to take certain issues forward, which we don't necessarily agree with what the judge had said in his judgment. At this point, I'm going to hand over to Marius. Thank you. Okay, hello everybody. It's great to be in Cape Town. I'd have preferred to be at a wine farm, but anyway, uh, it's still there. good to be here. <coughs> Is that better, Natasha? Good. Christian <laughs> um, referred to the Financial Soundness Board Notice. Just a few thoughts on that. Now the, we, we didn't want to be too prescriptive. Um, there's certainly worldwide no single method that is acceptable for pension fund valuations. You can go to every country in the world, and every country basically follows its own method, different method. And even in Europe, and Europe is constantly arguing whether it should implement solvency two for pensions or not. Europa has just come out with guidance or potential guidance, and people are arguing really about against that because they feel that it is too uh, strong valuation basis for for pensions, and the employers there is to back up and so on. So, you know, so we didn't be too prescriptive. Therefore, we do allow the called risk-free basis and the best estimate basis. Um, so this is what, that's one point. The other two reasons why we issued the notice is to enhance some or to bring about some uniformity. For too long, I believe that validators have been using bases which are very far apart. 
if you look at the, the results of evaluation based on risk-free versus equity risk premium, it could easily be like 20 or 30 or 40 percent apart away from each other, I would guess. And I haven't seen the results of that, but just my guess. And it would be, a, I think, use, very useful if the profession and us can come to some point where we get more uniformity in the results. Um, then also, if you, the second reason I think is that if you follow an equity risk approach, it's really quite a weakish basis. And I don't believe that members are fully protected if you don't have any solvency reserves. Hence, we do require the level of solvency reserve to be added if you follow an equity risk premium basis. Um, so, okay, members hopefully will be better protected. We are meeting with RMC, like Christian said. If any other company wants to come and meet with us to discuss in person, very welcome. And we'll certainly talk to you about that. So what I'm going to do in this section, if you just hit the buttons here, is more talk about specific uh, valuation reports we've received in the last two years. So we just took the last or the top 10 or biggest 10 reports um, to give an indication of the basis used. So it's quite big funds, 357 billion rands is quite big, so it's quite representative. And of those funds, the minimum funding level was 100% and maximum 115.6. Now that funding level here includes the solvents or all reserves. So basically it's assets divided by uh, liabilities plus reserves, which give these, uh, these two numbers. This slide gives quite a lot of detail, and I'm not sure if everybody can see that. What we have, well, one of the purposes of this slide is to compare the valuation basis at surplus apportionment date and at the latest valuation date. There has been a lot of concerns raised and complaints from all sorts of people that the FSB, together with the profession, uh, aided people to hide surplus. So there was a concern that people use a strong valuation basis at the surplus apportionment date and then weaken the basis thereafter. So We've compared a lot of things here, so the, the right four columns would be the basis at the surplus apportionment date, and then on the left-hand side, the basis at the last valuation date. Uh, so we give here the pre-retirement discount rate, post-retirement discount rate, inflation, and the real gap, the real gap being the difference between the uh, pre-retirement discount rate and the total salary assumption at age 40. So. You can do the calculations yourself, but basically what we saw here is that there is no real trend in weakening or strengthening the basis. A weaker basis, well, the, the basis weakened in, in funds A, C, and E. Funds B, F, G, and I used stronger basis, and then D, H, and J had no active members, so clearly it's not relevant for them. So it's really a mixed uh, bunch from, from these funds in terms of whether it was strengthened or weakened uh, over the time. We also have the post-retirement discount rate, so from there, together with the inflation rate, you can see what's the, the inflation increase assumption. And uh, on that score, um, there were four funds which had clearly had 100% pension increase policy at both valuation dates, that's funds A, C, G, and I. Uh, the two others had also similar uh, pension increase policies or slash assumptions at the two dates, which is B at 90% and J75%. What is good is that three funds increased the, the provision for pension increase policies, which is D, E, and H. So they went up from, say, 50 to 75, or from 75 to 
depending on what they find they did. The one exception is, is um, F, which had weaker post-retirement assumptions, um, basically going from 100% pension crisis policy to 75% to 70%. It's not clear, of course, I only looked at the assumptions here, so I assume that the pension crisis policy changed. It might also be an, an assumption issue, which uh, is not out of the question. That particular fund, uh, Fund F, had a stronger basis before retirement and a weaker basis after retirement. So in total, it's probably neither here nor there, uh, but nevertheless, they did change the pension increase policy. On a similar vein, some more uh, interesting facts from those is that, you know, there's, there's two methods that you can use to calculate the minimum withdrawal benefits, and there's a clear trend towards moving to earnings yield basis. All of these funds, uh, except for those without um, active members, use this method, earnings yield, and I, th I think there's a real, and, well, majority of funds now use that. In terms of whether they used equity risk premium or, or risk-free basis, there's also about 50-50 split, uh, just slightly more towards the risk, to the, towards the risk premium basis, uh, six of them and four years risk-free. So again, there's no clear trend in which to use. I will have to see whether that changes over time. Um, the funding level here, now this is quite a, important to note, the difference here at the previous slide is that these uh, funding levels exclude any reserves. So this is basically just the asset value divided by what you can call technical provisions. Um, so it's clear if you look at the previous slide that the funds limited the solvency reserves or reserves in total not to put them in, in a deficit. Um, I mean the lowest one here is 101 percent. Clearly that fund would, would not have had a full solvency reserve. One concern, and that is one of the reasons potentially why we issued the other notice, was that a fund, funds using equity risk premium basis, basically a 50-50% chance of, of being strong or weak, um, a lot of them had funding levels just above 100%. So it's fairly obvious that if you add any margin of solvency reserve, the funds would be in deficit. So I don't think uh, these funds, the members are really well protected. For example, uh, J, um, I, G, and so on. I mean, Equity yield by uh, equity risk premium basis, together with a fairly low funding level, doesn't really give much protection for members. Okay, now this interesting slide here. I mean, the the role of the regulator is not to look at or, or monitor con professional conduct evaluators. That is everybody's in this room's duty. If you pick up something, you have to report it to the ESA office to the and. Uh, and to report that conduct of other evaluators. Some issues which we do pick up, and when we do pick them up, we do take it up, the last two points here, were the evaluator concerned on a confidential basis? We do talk to the ESA office here in, in Mutual. Um, if after all these discussions we feel that it's not of such a nature that any further steps are taken, we, we don't Followed up, but clearly, if there would be steps, there will be official formal complaint against the person involved. Some issues that potentially is of concern is the first one: use of electronic signature. Um, we've seen in many cases, especially valuation exemption, that that some validators use an electronic signature. 
I, I don't think they're really aware of what they certify because somebody else does it for them. Uh, they clearly don't look at the rules uh, in those cases, and there's a big risk of, of them certifying stuff which is not certifiable, if you want to call it that word. Um, if you want to cert use this electronic signature, please make sure data is correct, that the sy systems are correct, you trust the systems, so that you don't uh, put, uh, put yourself at risk of, of unprofessional behavior. I do think that if people take on too much work, and there's a big risk, I've been in consulting as well, the employer is always wanting to take on more, the bottom line, line is very important, and that may well lead to errors, incorrect information, and time delays. Now, if you've got too much to do, you just can't do it in time. And the next slide will show more of that. Um, it's, uh, we learned from very early on in actuarial studies that data is important, so always make sure your data is of such a nature that you can certify. If you're not happy, give the disclaimers where necessary. Um, the last bullet there, the, or the last indented bullet, is not really a problem if you don't um, give motivations, explanations, but it does give, make our job easier if you, when you certify and there's any doubt, that should give motivations why you've done that and why you've certified in a certain way. So, before I show that slide, can I ask, how, how long do you think it should it take for a fund or slash evaluator to respond to an FSB query? Three weeks. Natasha, any other takers? Okay, I, I, know, I know it's not only the validators that has to respond. Because often the question is about uh, fund issues. The trustees are really responsible, but, the, trustee, but they, the validators are in a very important position and can drive the response. And of course, often the, the query is addressed to the validator because the validator submits the, the uh, report in the first place. So Natasha said three weeks. I think it's 21 days. Now, this is one particular evaluator. Um, of course, you, I won't name, mention the name because of confidentiality issues, but that's a number of days outstanding up to the 15th of January since the issue of the last query letter. Um, I, I'm not, I think 2145 is something more than north of five years. So Christian and the team, when they do the admin visits, they do raise these questions, but not, I don't think, as far as I know, per evaluator. In future, I would ask him to do that, so that validators are aware of, of the outstanding queries. I severely suspect that this particular person has forgotten about most of these issues. Um, I will certainly also write personal letters to validators where I think there's a problem. So if you, if, if in our opinion, there's too long delays in your responding, you can expect a letter in the not too distant future. But this is really unacceptable. Just some topical issues to end up with. And Twin Peaks, um, so you all know that the bill was, uh, went through cabinet last year. It's out for comment, I forgot the date, I think it's 15th of March or somewhere there. And I'm sure that uh, actually Royal Society will comment if they haven't done so already. It will go through, well, if I say it will, I expect it to go through Parliament first quarter or second quarter of the year. The plan is to split out the prudential part on the 1st of April. So every indication is that, that insur actuarial insurance plus the insurance prudential people will move to the Reserve Bank on the 1st of April, whether the bill has gone through or not. 
and there will then be FSB employees but sitting at a different building and still reporting technically to us, but uh, the split, I expect, will take place that date. I don't see that as far as the, the actual pensions people are concerned, and most of you are concerned, there will be too much difference. I do see there's still a, there's still a block planned for actual in the new uh, in the new structure. What will change is their duties will be expanded, so some of the current insurance stuff, the market conduct stuff, which is currently done by the insurance team, will clearly be done by the, the I can't call them the actual pension team, the, the new actual team. Uh, but for the, for the most part of it, the, the position will be as is at the moment uh, for your work. Um, Kristen asked me earlier when we drove here, what about the Section 14 people? I, I mean, I can't answer that yet. It, it may be very close, maybe a little bit further from us, but basically the actual work will, be, will remain the same. As for section 14 and 15, we're going to just redraft some of the directives because of the legislation changes last year. Uh, for example, two section 14 issues is timelines, um, submission periods at the moment. With, in the past, they were the same for DB, DC, and so on. It's clearly more onerous for DB funds, so we do plan to change that to have a different submission periods for DC and DB to give, I mean, DC funds really must be very quick. DB funds, there's more issues with calculations, and they can take longer. Another thing is that there's a requirement to transfer the assets after a transfer within 60 days, and at the moment there's no requirement to transfer or to give the member schedule together with that. So the, the transferee fund receives the assets, not the member schedule, and they can't do nothing with the money because I don't know how to apply that, so that will be a requirement to give that schedule as well. Um, in terms of Section 15, we're going to consolidate all the directives, all the pension fund circulars uh, into one. Um, yeah, and I think that's basically that for, for this part of the presentation. So any questions, happy to answer that. Oh, sorry, I forgot about that, yes. Now, because of this KZN um, appeal board issue that Krista referred to, the last one that referred to, there's certainly a difference in opinion of what an RBE is between different people. So, uh, in, in this particular case, the, the fund had uh, made, made promises to the members outside of the, outside of the rules of the fund. But can only be met as long as there is money. So the question is, is that an expectation of the members or not? Our argument was that if it's not in the rules of the fund, it can't be an expectation. So there's been for a long time difference of opinions on that. And I know Jeremy's wrote something many years back. I just read that in the plan over here. At the time, between the FSB, this must be about seven, eight years now, between the FSB and ESSA, they decided not to issue any guidance. But I think it's time that we look at that again and if necessary, issue guidance on what it actually means to have an expectation which is reasonable. So just an issue of what we will look at and we'll probably talk to, to RMC about this year. Any questions? Marius, in your, your uh, figures about the, the actions responding to queries, does that come from your automated system? The, the no, this is actually hand numbers. So what, what they did for me is they got 
a report per... Okay, what I also did, for, for every action we can draw a report, fund and how long it took since the last... Thing. So it's not quite automated, it's a bit for handwork, but of course the data is, is in the... do not reply to msp.co.za, basically um, reattaching all the query letters. So it's obvious whatever system that was has not taken any account whatever of the fact that those mm. queries have been responded to. So I'm, I'm just flagging this as okay. something that you'll have to be sensitive to the fact yes. that they might well have been responded to. We, we will be. Thank you, Jeremy. Oh, this, is, this is mostly a hand system. Um, but clearly we'll have to, to make sure that the data we have is correct. Um, No, there is a whole school that's trying to sort it out. Um, well, the view that was expressed in 135 was as our view, and still is our view. We have made contact with National Treasury to discuss the issue with them. So certainly for us, there's drive to, to get Treasury, to get the, the policy direction on that issue. So we, we're driving that. No, no, we haven't. Um, I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, I've had discussions after the Johannesburg meeting. Now, the intention is not to say that all funds must have assets equal to the full solvency reserve. If that came out in that thing, I, I don't think it's quite the intention. What is the intention is that funds must on their own decide what level of solvency reserve they need. Now, and maybe one option would be, I think the Australians follow this approach, where they say that they need a 70% size efficiency. So in, you know, in SAM, insolvency is 99.5%. Pensions, we know, is different because it's the employer backing up the liabilities. So it can be lower, but it must be more than 50. So we might ask ASA, ASA RMC or the big companies to actually tell us or guide us and help us to say, how do we get to that, for the moment, say 70% at sufficiency level? Does, that, does it mean risk-free plus 2%, plus 3%? What does it mean? And then that can maybe be a guide going forward. We did refer to, now this seems completely skew. We did refer to the uh, strength of the employer in that notice, and I think that was mainly there for the, for the GEPF. But I've also got a meeting with them on Friday where we discussed the valuation basis, their funding method, everything on Friday. So we, we certainly have that in mind when we draft. It's, po it's possible, but there are a lot of, I mean, there's quite a number left, 300 or so, and I mean, they will be, be there for a long time. We can't just ignore them. I mean, it's, it's more important to have the regulation of the DB funds right from an actuarial perspective than DC funds. So our effort has to be on those where the risk is the bigger, that's, that's DB. Yeah. 
cloud basis coming with full solar reserve requirements, obviously it's going to make it extremely expensive for mm. a person to retire the fund because we're going to translate that into the purchase price. And that's going to be not in the interest mm. of, of, of those kind of funds. So um, there are things that, uh, you know, it's, this, is, this is a really difficult thing to manage. And I mean, imagine like that when you say mm. that I'm very concerned if you just have a broad branch of approach across all of these because there's some unintended yeah. No, we, we, we've got to think of the unintended consequences. We can't just put something there and say this is it. So clearly we've got to do that and see what the effect would be on, on the funds in general and particularly the GPF because it is the expectation of GPF coming to, under the Pension Funds Act in the not too distant future. Well, the Act says we can prescribe it, yeah. But, but the intention is not that there's not a prescribed place on the table yet. But, but, but currently, on the solvency reserve issue, you do allow a lot of. It seems you must evaluate the mistake term and you must take into account various mm. things. So there's not a. Whether there's going to be a prescribed basis for the solvency reserve that you're talking to, or whether you're going to have it, in essence, there will be scope for the valuator to motivate also something different to if there is a prescribed or a prescribed range mm. or a in whatever that will make it a lot that will give some leeway for something to come and convince you to say why it is what it is mm. um, to make not just pick it but, but that would help if it's not put into boxes that you that you're able to decide mm. noted any more yes Yeah. we should then be looking at just the MRR, which is it's defined in legislation as the exact basis on which to, to do it. So long as funds are funding to that, plus effectively wants to put some sort of extra margin on that, and we come up with a certain concept between pensions. I mean that, that's the objectively calculated value, which doesn't need any additional, you know, the difference between risk-free media, uh, risk-free, all these other things. We've got an existing basis which could work on. We don't need to answer now, just a suggestion. Just a second thing, which, which came out in the notes, and I think it came out in what you're saying just now. In terms of the solvency reserve, the solvency reserve isn't just the difference between your uh, basis, your risk premium and risk free. There's obviously a lot of other things, particularly in the mortality side. So you, you made a comment, something to the effect that um, we, need a, we need to fund the solvency reserve because some valuators are using the best estimate basis. But we must be careful then that we're not funding a whole solvency reserve, which is obviously a large part of the fifty percent is the mortality improvement as well. Um, if, if all you want is for us to do the calculation as well on a risk-free basis, um, then we wouldn't mm. be able to fund hundred percent of the solvency reserve. Mm. I took that as a as a comment, not a question. <laughs> 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 okay. Are there any questions? <laughs> yes. Morris, on an unrelated matter, I'd like to make an appeal. I'm not sure if this is your and Christian's department. The answer is no, it's not, but yes, my theory. <laughs> Circulars, information circulars, directive 
registrar is issued. To find anything there, unless you happen to know exactly the form um, of the document, it's a bit of a mission because you've got to figure out whether it was a directive or a board document. Can't something be done to kind of index that a little bit more effectively or organize that? Mm, I can certainly take it back. I mean, I agree with you. I was looking for the short-term board notes the other day, and I couldn't, I couldn't find it until somebody told me it's 169, and I could search for 169, and then I found it. But, but yes, I, so I agree. With, I would take it back. So, Morris, could I add to that? If you could even just put some key words, because the board, board notice is being issued. You simply have a board notice number of such and such a year. You have got absolutely no idea okay. what Crystal will try to remember me tomorrow, yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that's a more difficult question. I agree with Eric. <laughs> so I could comment on that. <laughs> Sorry, sir. Oh, there's, a, there's supposed to be one. Yeah, there's one. And for, please, yeah, please. That's, that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs>